Well, good morning. Good morning, church. If you have your Bibles with you, I would invite you, please, to open them to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 through 26. This is our final message on keeping in step with the Spirit. This morning we'll be looking at the fruit of self-control. Keeping in step with the Spirit, self-control. Um, just so you know, the next two weeks I will not be preaching. I, I may be here, but uh, Tim is going to be here next week and Dave's story the week after that. Um, depending on how Amy is feeling, we may be in Cape Breton. So I've asked you to pray for me as we go there to minister at a camp. So keep us in your prayers. Galatians 5, 13 through 26. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk in the Spirit. And you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of rage, rivalries, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your kindness and your faithfulness, for your love and your patience. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to mirror you as you have called us to do. I pray that you would help us, Lord, to live the Christian life because we cannot do it apart from you and your grace and your spirit at work in us. I pray that you would be with us this morning, Lord, and help us to leave transformed more into the likeness of your Son, Jesus Christ, than when we came in. I pray that you would help me to preach, Lord, your word faithfully. And I pray that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to receive, Lord, and that you would do the work in this place this morning. Lord, to you alone be the glory, not to us, but to you, Lord. And I pray that you would have your way, Lord, as we offer up as an offering our worship through the preaching of your word together this morning. 
And it's in your name we pray. It is to you we look. And in the name of your Son, we give thanks. Amen. Well, most of you have probably heard of the marshmallow experiment. It was carried out by Walter Michel. It was done to preschoolers in the 1970s. And he took five-year-olds and he put them by themselves in a room, one in a room, all alone, and set a big fat marshmallow down in front of them and told them, if you can wait 15 minutes until I get back, not only will you get to eat this marshmallow, but I'll give you another one. And you can have two marshmallows, the one I give you and the one that's sitting here on the table. Well, as you can imagine, some children ate the marshmallow as soon as he was out the door. Some children tried as hard as they could to resist, but before the 15 minutes was over, they succumbed to the temptation of the marshmallow. And some children managed the entire 15 minutes, and then they received two of them. One of the interesting things about this experiment is that it took place almost 50 years ago. And in the 50 years that have passed, Walter Michel was able to look at those participants and see if this ability of self-restraint and self-control actually had an impact in their lives. And what he discovered was that of those who waited the 15 minutes exercise the self-control, got the second marshmallow, they scored higher on their SATs, on standardized tests, they were in better physical shape, they were healthier, they had more advanced careers, and they were better able to cope with stress and the difficulties they faced in this world. And so he concluded that the value of self-control is immeasurable. It is a great virtue. That was his conclusion. However, and unfortunately, self-control is also a virtue gone by the wayside in our day. Inhibition has become for some people a hobby. Getting a little bit out of control right, for large swaths of the population, that's their definition of a good time. And besides that, who are you to tell anyone they ought to control themselves? Overeating? Even though it can destroy someone's health, it should not be restrained. And if you say it should, you're fat shaming. There's a kind of dress that is appropriate for people to wear, and there is a kind of dress that is inappropriate. But if you make that distinction, you're shaming people. And sexual impulses ought to be controlled, ought to be kept in check. But if you say this publicly, well, there's a near endless array of pejoratives to throw at you. Any form of moral restraint, any form of it is ridiculed. And those who believe in it, that self-control is a good thing, are held up to be mocked. Right? Warned that they're on the wrong side of history. Now, this should not come as a surprise for those of us in the church. It should be expected. You really can't blame the world around you for thinking this way. Because if you think like the world thinks, 
then self-control does not make any real or reasonable sense. Self-restraint, self-control, things like self-discipline, they are futile if. Exercising them is, is a waste of time if this world is all that you've got, right? If you only live once, then you'd better get as much out of this one go as you can. Why exercise restraint? Why sacrifice for the good of another if it leaves my own desires unfulfilled? Why practice controlling myself? Why not indulge my every desire and whim if this is it and then we die? And you think, well, because there are consequences. Well, maybe they are, but what do they matter? If the consequence is less than going to jail or or being killed, dying, then why should I deprive myself? You can imagine people in the world thinking this way. The consequences are meaningless. I die. If I offend someone, they die. And nothing matters in the end. And so the only purpose for living is to get as much out of life as I can. That's the mantra of the day. uh, Pleasure without conscience. You know, it reminds me of a story when I was in college. Uh, my first, first year, I was taking a, an economic class, interested me. And the professor was warning all of the students about the danger of wealth and about the danger of money. And he was laboring the point, you know, there's more to life than riches. Money won't make you happy. He's quoting statistics, making the point. And he probably spent the first 15 minutes of the class over and over trying to convince these students that there is more to life than dollars. Well, the student near the front of the room put up his hand and got the, got the professor's attention. The, the professor motioned to him to speak. And the student said, with all due respect, professor, I don't want to be happy. I want to be rich. And he made the point, I suppose if you're going to be miserable, it's better to be miserable and well-fed and have a roof over your house, miserable and rich, than miserable and poor. And if you're going to die, and that's all there is, it's better to die eating and drinking and making merry than restrained and fasting and self-denial. It's the way the world thinks. Now, people may not think that way all the time, People do see a value in self-control. Many lament not having it. You know, just like in the marshmallow experiment, they recognize the value of restraint, but the voices of the spirit of the age always crying out that everything is meaningless. And so when it comes time to exercise self-control, there's no motivation for it. I mean, what's the point? Why deny if we're going to die? It's hard to believe but it wasn't always like this. There were times in history where things like self-control and self-discipline were extraordinarily valued in society, especially in ancient cultures, but even up to just a few decades ago, someone who could not control himself or herself was frowned upon. Probably the most famous example of this are the ancient Greeks, the Stoics, and the philosophers who had a, a tremendous effect on Rome. And the Stoics believed, and I'm massively simplifying this, but the Stoics believed that the only thing you really can control in your life is how you respond to whatever happens 
to you. That's what you have control over, and there's some truth to that. You don't have very much control over what happens to you, but you have a lot of control about how you respond. And so the Stoic, in the simplest definition, believe that you should be in total control over the response you make rather than letting that control or that, that happenstance, whatever happened, exercise control over you to bend you into anger or into fear or whatever. Then you'll be able to respond appropriately when you're in control of your response. Then you'll be able to maintain your peace. And this was one of the prevailing philosophies during the time of Christ and the early church, Stoicism. You could, uh, you could look to uh, the British as well here as an example, right? Keep calm and carry on. Bombs dropping overhead. What, what did they want you to do? Control your emotions. Control yourself. Be calm. Don't be afraid. Be in control. Don't let it shake you. Keep a, keep a stiff upper lip. Mm. People make better decisions when they're in control. People do not make good decisions when they are panicked or out of control. And so there was a value placed on these things in times past, but with the expansion of the kind of thinking that has no view of life after death, where this is it, uh, it's really fallen by the wayside, self-control. But it's not a uniquely Christian virtue. There was value in it outside of the faith, the same way honesty has value outside of the faith, or the same way patience has value. But that's where we're at as a society. Self-control, no longer commended, no longer admired, it's just a thing. Some people do, some people don't. And yet for the Christian, for the Christian, it is indispensable. It really is. It is one of the enduring nine foremost characteristics of the Spirit of God at work in a person. Self-control. It's one of the things that the Spirit is working to create in every, every believer. And it's a word that doesn't need much explanation, does it? Everybody knows exactly what self-control is. It's the ability to control yourself. And every human being faces this challenge, don't they? There are things that we want to do that we don't do. There are things that we do not want to do that we have to make ourselves do. And there are things that we want to do that we must resist doing. And one of the things unique about self-control, maybe out of all of the fruit of the Holy Spirit, it's the one we feel we have the most control over. Isn't it? It's not like joy. You can't Make yourself be joyful, but you can make yourself skip dessert or put your nose to the grind and do that task that you really didn't want to do. We feel that we have more control over this and are not being mastered by something else. Kind of ironic when you think of self-control because that's what it's all about. Probably why we feel we have so much control over it. It's mastering yourself. And really it begins with the control of our minds. From there it goes to our emotions and to our actions. And the reason I say it begins in our minds with our thinking is because this is how you often see it connected in Scripture. It's connected to sober-mindedness and to right thinking. In the qualifications for being an elder in 1 Timothy, Titus, and 1 Peter, all of them have self-control and a sound mind linked together. They go together. In Luke 8.35 and Mark 
5.15. It's the story of the demoniac who lives amongst the tombs. And the, the one thing describing him is he is unrestrainable and out of control. That's the demoniac. Out of control, unrestrained. When Jesus heals him, it, he is described as being clothed and the number one thing that they, they, they put on him, so they only had to pick two things. How are we going to describe this demoniac? In his right mind. So you have out of control contrasted with being in your right mind. And in Romans 12.3, it calls all Christians to a kind of self-control. It says, think with sober judgment. And so it begins in the mind. Right thinking, and then it affects every area of life. And when it comes to self-control, it's something that can be trained. People train themselves in self-control in the same way a person might train to excel at their job or excel in a sport or excel at memorization or excel uh, in, in, in uh, strength. We can train ourselves in self-control. Second Peter 1, 6. For this very reason, make every effort. So, there's effort to be made. Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control. And self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. The point is, that is something we're told to strive after. Make every effort to be self-controlled. So there is effort to be made on our part, and there are things that we can do to cultivate self-control. And it's, it's hard because you're trying to control something really that wants to be wild and unrestrained. It's like a horse that isn't broken or a dog that isn't trained. In fact, the word itself, self-control, doesn't that imply that there is something about us that needs to be mastered and is not under control? Of course it does. And there are things you can do very practically to train yourself in self-control. And so there are uh, things drawn out of biblical principle here, and I have six of them, that will help you to develop self-control, which will help you to live the Christian life. And the first is determined to do it. Right? Make up your mind that you will get self-control. Don't just assume. What's the opposite of this? Assuming that it's going to happen. Right? That one day, as I get, I think we think that way sometimes, just as I grow older, eventually it's going to come. It won't. Nothing works that way. If anything, the opposite is true. The older you get, the harder it becomes. Either you put in the effort at hard work and learn self-control, right? As Paul says, you'll beat your body and make it your slave, or it will be the master of you. And you will be controlled by your impulses, controlled by your desires, and led by the flesh. So make up your mind, right? You're going to discipline yourself and train yourself for self-control. Realize that you're not just going to wake up one day and it's going to be there. It's not. And maybe the first place that you'll start is by deciding that 
uh, going to read the Word and pray every day and put sporadic here and there Bible and prayer to rest. You start by making it a daily discipline. You resolve it in your mind. That's where it begins. And it's not a maybe. It's not a I hope it will work out. It's not, well, as time goes on, it'll come. No, you take responsibility for yourself and for your actions and you make it happen regardless of the cost because there will be a cost. You will lose something, but that's to be expected, right? Maybe it'll be the loss of uh, YouTube videos or scrolling on the phone. You may have to give them up to meet the goal. Maybe if you're, a, if, you know, if you're a morning person, it'll be a little earlier to bed, a little earlier to rise. Maybe it means you set aside some of the time that you would have spent in the evening to unwind, and instead you're going to spend it seeking the Lord in the Word and in prayer. And that's just applying self-control to Bible reading and prayer, but, but foundational to it is a resolve a determination to do something and knowing that other things are going to have to give way in order to make room for it. And the only way to do this, number two, is to make a schedule or have a plan. It doesn't have to be written out. It might help some of you if you write it out. But you have to have a plan and stick to it. For Bible reading and prayer, absolutely. Maybe you say, I'm going to read before breakfast. Maybe it's over lunch. Maybe in the evening. Maybe it's a few times throughout the day. You set aside for praying. But whatever you intend to do, you have to have a plan to do it. Because good intention and resolve will not come to anything without some thought about how to bring those things to pass. So uh, say you wanted to go on a diet. For example, think about how you will do it. Don't just coast and say, well, I, I have a will to diet, I want to do it, therefore uh, it'll carry on and it'll happen. It won't. Make a plan. Maybe uh, I'm not going to have snacks throughout the day. Maybe I'm going to have a smaller lunch. Maybe I'm not going to eat after a certain time. Whatever it is, you need a plan and that will help you to practice self-control. And the reason it's helpful, so why does that help? It preempts fleshly impulses. And that's the third point. Say no to the flesh. Practice self-denial. And it's easier to do before the temptation arrives than after it arises. You know, so if you're going to pick up a coffee at Tim Hortons, you know, you're, you're, you're tempted to eat a dozen donuts, you decide beforehand, I am not going to get them. Don't make that decision when the donuts are staring at you begging to be eaten. Don't uh, decide when you go to a meal, I am not going to go for seconds, or I'm not going to leave snacks in the car. We're talking about food again, but there are many other ways to practice self-denial and self-control. One of them is by making yourself do things you really don't want to do. Right? There's a miserable job at the work site. Volunteering for it is an act of self-control. You are making your body, which craves ease and which desires comfort, do something uncomfortable but necessary. Now, well, maybe it's climbing around in an attic, spraying insulation. Maybe it's inputting, uh, you know, binders full of data into the computer. Maybe it's it's fixing something that you know is going to be miserable to try to fix. The flesh hates those things, doesn't it? Because they're not easy. I might pinch my fingers. They're uncomfortable. But you have to make it. You master your body, not the other way around. 
And as you exercise authority over self by self-denial, you strengthen it and it grows. It's like a muscle that gets stronger as it's worked. Another way to do this, number four, is by refusing to procrastinate. Refusing to procrastinate. Now, when we think of procrastination, we just think of it generally as just a character trait. Right? It's, it's neutral, really. You know, some people do it. Some people do things right away. Some people work better under pressure. And they wait to the last minute, and they both produce the same quality of work in the end. That's not true if you've ever had to evaluate the quality. You can tell who did it the night before and who did the, actually took the time to do the work. That's a lie told by procrastinators to make themselves feel better about putting off until tomorrow what they should have done today. But it's a demonstration of a lack of self-control. And not only that, it's also the sin of presumption. Have you ever thought of it like that before? Procrastination, waiting for another time to do what I have the time to do today. It's actually sinful. You say, how is it sinful? Well, let's think about it as Christians. Where does your time come from? Who orders your day? Well, it comes from the Lord. God does. And how many things in the run of a week surprise you? Things come that you don't expect. They interrupt you and throw off your schedule. Many. And does God want you to use your time well or does He want you to waste it? He wants you to use your time well. He wants you to redeem the time for the days are evil. Well, if that's true, and God has given you then a task to accomplish, and He has given you the time to accomplish it on a particular day, then isn't it presumptuous to wait until later? Isn't that assuming that God will give you the time tomorrow even though He's given you it already today? You don't know what tomorrow will hold. You could get a call from a friend in need. You could get sick or injured and be unable to do the work. Many things could happen. Right, let me give you an example. It's Monday. You have an important deadline on Friday, but you don't want to worry about it. So you focus on less important things, less demanding tasks. You say, I could do it today, but I'll do it, I'll do it later instead. Later comes, and now you're so sick you can't get out of bed and you're going to miss the deadline on Friday. Now, if you could ask the Lord, God, this is so important. Why did you deny me the time that I, I had set aside to do this? How would he answer? So I did give you the time, Monday and Tuesday, but you wasted it, and it was squandered. So don't procrastinate. That is a principle that will help you to develop self-control. I have the time now. I may not have it tomorrow, right? So I, I've got to prioritize what I need to get done. If I have a really important task, I'm going to do it first, not last. Right? Don't put the, the hard things off until the end. Do those first. Because it would be sinful to presume otherwise. So deny all the lesser tasks or leisure or entertainment that's competing for your time and do the work that is in front of you, that God has put in front of you. Number five, sacrifice for responsibility. You know, we touched on this already, but make up your minds that you're going to have to give up certain things in order to fulfill the responsibilities that God has given you. It's another way of denying the flesh. 
You know, you, you really learn this. You learn this very quickly when you become parents. Certainly, uh, certain things that you used to have time for, you don't have time for anymore. And you're going to have to put things aside and cut things off in order to perform the responsibilities God has given you as mom or dad. And being self-controlled not only means you're willing to sacrifice these things, but you don't get resentful when you have to. You welcome the responsibility, realizing that having been faithful in a little, God has given you more. And, and responsibility, listen, it's a good thing. It really has a way of, of uh, developing self-control. Right? Parents know this. Entrepreneurs know this. Employers know this. Officers know this. When others depend on you for their livelihood or for their lives, the weight of that can sober up a person's mind really fast and focus them on things that matter, help them to make their priorities and get themselves under control to do what they have to do. So don't be afraid of responsibility if the Lord is giving it to you. It's a blessing. And number six, know yourself. Especially know your weaknesses. If you are prone to some temptation, then avoid it. Right? This is an act of self-control. It, rem it, it, uh, it reminds me of a kid's story. Um, frog and toad. How many of you have heard of Frog and Toad? Okay, yeah, there's a few. Right, well, one of the stories, one of the stories is all about self-control or it's about willpower, right? Oh, this is a different one. In this one, Toad makes some delicious cookies and he takes them to his friend Frog and they say they're the most delicious cookies they've ever eaten and they're in danger of eating the entire batch. And so they decide they will eat one last cookie. And then they decide they will eat one very last cookie. And then Frog cries, Toad, what we need is willpower. And so they put the cookies into a box. And then they discover a problem. We can open the box. And so they tie the box shut. And then they realize we can just cut the string. And so they put the box high up on a shelf, out of sight. And then they realize, well, we can just climb up and get the box. And so Frog does this. He climbs up, he gets the box of cookies, brings them down, cuts the string, opens the box, steps outside into the swamp and throws the cookies outdoors to the birds. Toad laments. He says, Frog, we have no more cookies to eat. And Frog says, yes. But we have lots and lots of willpower. There's a sense where this is true. Do you know that? It took self-control to take something that they strongly desired and then cast it away to the birds so that it would no longer tempt them. You know, we, we laugh at that and we think, well, real self-control would mean just leave the jar sitting on the shelf and practice willpower. Now listen, Christian, you are weak <laughs> in many ways. And there are 
thousands upon thousands of temptations that are way stronger than you are and then your resolve is and the only way that you can ever hope to deal with them is by cutting them off and casting them away. Sometimes people think spiritual maturity means being able to walk right by sin and temptation and not be seduced by them. Listen, that's not spiritual maturity. That's foolishness. Because maturity and self-control sometimes require that you flee. Right? Flee sexual immorality, the Bible says. It's too strong for you. Don't toy with it. Don't try and keep it at arm's length. The only proper course of action is to run away. It's like fighting a grizzly bear. You're walking through the woods, a grizzly bear comes out. The fool is the one who is going to go toe-to-toe with it, and he's not going to make it. The wise man at least tries to get away. And very often, fleeing a situation takes a lot more self-control than staying in it. And these are things that are true and helpful, whether you are a Christian or not. These are things that the Stoics would advance. So why is self-control capping off the list of walk-defining, spirit-empowered virtues in the Christian life? It's because there is a war raging inside of every believer, and you know it. This is not just a matter of, I should or shouldn't do this. It is a matter of war between the lust of the flesh and the desire of the Spirit. Verses 16 and 17 of Galatians 5. But I say, walk in the Spirit, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So the self-control in mind here is aimed at overcoming the works of the flesh. Self-control without the Spirit Self-control for its own sake, like the Stoics had. The Bible says in Colossians 2.23, it has the appearance of wisdom and it has the appearance of religion and severity to the body, but it's worthless in restraining the indulgence of the flesh. There is more going on here than just self-control. I mean, think of Paul in 1 Corinthians 9.27, right? Literally, the apostle writes, I batter my body and make it my slave. And there's a command to strive and to train and to work and to master the flesh and not the other way around and be mastered by it. It doesn't master us. Keeping in step with the Spirit ends in controlling the flesh, starving it and not gratifying its desires. And yet Paul... The same man he is who writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Romans 7. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do, that I do not want is what I keep on doing. I do not do the good that I want. I beat my body and make it my slave. Walk in the Spirit and you will not gratify 
the, 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 the desires of the flesh. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. I think everybody who is a Christian understands this conflict. There is something in us that not, is not just needing to be hemmed in so that we can have a good life. There is a fleshly thing in us. I'm not sure what to call it, but it's there. And it works with all its might against the Spirit of God. It opposes Him. It wants to control us for sin's sake. And we fight against it every day. And so even though self-control is important for all people, the kind of control that Paul has in mind here is not just about bringing yourself under control, but it's about bringing yourself under control for the sake of Christ. Bringing yourself under control for the sake of living in the Spirit and putting sin to death. And if you don't have it at a physical level, you won't have it at a spiritual level. If you can't resist a donut, you won't be able to resist the devil. But if you can control yourself and say no to the temptation of the devil, then the donut won't be a problem. Spiritual self-control shows itself in physical ways. There is something uniquely Christian about this because the world's concern about self-control really doesn't have anything to do with pleasing God. It doesn't have anything to do with living for Christ. It has to do with living the best life I can while I'm here. That's self-control for self's sake, if one can be bothered to exercise it at all, and it really isn't much more than idolatry. But we master ourselves for Christ. Not for self-improvement, but for sanctification. And it isn't easy. But unlike the world around us, we have been given very powerful motivations to carry us along. It's not... You only live once, so eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. It's what you do right now matters for eternity. And the Bible does give us strong reasons to deny ourselves and control and master the flesh in order to live worthy of the Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel we have believed in. There are a lot of them. There are a lot more than, than three, but I'm going to narrow in on three. One... Who owns you? Who's in charge of your life? It isn't you. 1 Corinthians 6, 20. Listen to this. This is one of many verses in the Bible that say the same thing, but this probably says it the clearest. 1 Corinthians 6, 20. You are not your own. For... So you're not your own. You don't belong to you. Why? You were bought with a... Price, so glorify God in your body. You don't belong to you. If you're a Christian, you are a slave to Christ. You're a, you're a doulos, one of Paul's favorite words referring to himself, a slave of Jesus Christ. You think about this. He owns you. He has bought you. He has purchased you. You are His possession. That's all biblical language. And if you understand this, if you believe that Jesus really is your Lord, you know, a kind and gentle Master to be sure, but a Master nonetheless, He's the one who calls the shots, 
It's going to impact how you think about yourself and how you think about the decisions that you make. You're going to be asking a lot more, His will be done. And when the flesh fights, you're going to see it as fighting against Him. And so you'll make your flesh a servant to you so that you may be a servant to Christ as you have been purchased for and glorify Him with your body. If you are a Christian, you are not your own. You don't own you. It's not your life anymore. It's His. And this goes against almost everything in our modern sensibilities because everything is so self-centered. I mean, even right now, does it make you a little bit uneasy to think that you are the property of somebody else? That somebody else owns you and has the absolute right to tell you everything about your life, including how to dress, how to think, and how to speak? Your thoughts about others, your words towards them, where you put your time, where you focus your attention, all of them are to be controlled by the Word of God and not by you. And the only thing you ought to be concerned about as a Christian is how do I do the will of God and do, do what pleases Him? You don't have personal freedom or rights anymore if they conflict with the will of God. You don't have the freedom to pursue, pursue your own dreams and your own future. You are wholly bound to Jesus. And whatever He requires and whatever He commands, that is what to, you are to be about. And your own flesh must yield to Christ. And you said, I thought, you know, I thought we were called to freedom. Right? For freedom, Christ has set you free. Listen, it, that's true, but it's not like you were free and then Christ captured you and put you in a pen. It's like you were in line to the slaughterhouse and were bought for far more than we were worth and bought and taken out and placed into your new master's fields and they are vast and they are wide and there's all kinds of things in there to do and to enjoy and you have been set free now to roam them but there are still boundaries that are set by the one who saved you and freed you. That's one of the motivations for self-control. God owns me. I belong to Him. I am a slave of Christ and must be about His business and His will for my life. Number two, He is our Father. Not only are we described in the Bible as slaves, we are also described as sons. And God has been immeasurably kind towards His children. We have an inheritance in Him. We have been adopted by Him. We sit at His table with Him. His kindness towards us as a father ought to motivate us to self-control. What do I mean? Well, how many of you with children, you want them to serve you because they love you? We're told to fear the Lord. Yes, what kind of fear is it? The fear of disappointing Him because He's been so good to us? Maybe think of your own parents, your own earthly parents, or somebody else that you know and you love them dearly. When a temptation comes to do something you know that they would disapprove of, how many times have you said to yourself, I just can't bring myself to do this because I know the effect it would have on mom or dad or, or whoever? Our love for them has a restraining effect on us. 
And if we can do that with earthly parents and want them to be pleased with us and not want to disappoint them, how much more should we do that towards the Lord God? That's why Jesus says His burden is easy and His yoke is light. Love for God, His gentleness and His patience towards us, it makes or it ought to make our obedience easy to offer. When we love Him, we find it easier to say no to things that would displease our Father in Heaven. And in order to do that, the flesh, which cares only about the self and yields to no master, must be subdued. If you want to please your Father in Heaven, self-control. Third, Self-control that conquers the flesh brings joy. There is joy in restraining the fleeting pleasures of sin that the flesh runs after. Sin violates joy because it separates you from the joy giver. I mean, how many times have you given into temptation and regretted it? How many times have you been more joyful afterward? Not once. Not if you're a Christian. Not if the Spirit of God is in you. And that's true for everybody in this room. The Spirit of God brings more joy than any temptation, fleeting pleasure of the flesh could even offer. That's a powerful motivation to restrain the flesh and practice self-control. Right? Because sin, when it tempts, Right? The flesh, it's always drawn to lesser joys. So you're not just saying no to sin and temptation. You are saying yes to a superior pleasure and to a superior joy. Right? The joy of having a good relationship with my children ought to help restrain my frustration sometimes with my children. The desire for peace ought to help restrain my temper. And the joy of the Lord will be my strength and, and, and help me to resist the temptations and the works of the flesh. Obedience to the Lord at the expense of the flesh leads to greater joy in every instance. Isn't that helpful? You've got a temptation held out to you, something, whatever it is, and you can say to yourself, there is a temptation there. For what my flesh will find, if you're being realistic, the Bible says there are fleeting pleasures. There's pleasure there. It's temporary. It's small. It leads to death. The flesh does enjoy it. You can't just pretend that it's not there. Well, the Bible says, yes, it is. But there is a far greater pleasure and joy available for those who resist temptation and turn away from it and trust in Christ greater, superior joy is found there. And you know this because how many times have you resisted temptation and felt better for it? And the joy didn't dissipate immediately. There is joy in controlling yourself for the sake of Christ. And those are strong motivations for beating our bodies and making them slaves it actually doesn't lead to less enjoyment but to far greater enjoyment as Christians. But here at the end of the series, let me, let me end with a caution. 
these motivations and how you feel about them, they're going to tell you something about your own heart. There is a diagnostic test to be run here. Jesus is Savior and Jesus is Lord. That, that's a, the basic Christian confession. Jesus is Lord. And what it means to be in the kingdom. It does not merely mean to acknowledge that Jesus is God or that He is Creator or that He is real or even that He is Savior. I mean, demons can do that. Being in the kingdom means that Jesus is Lord and He governs. You, do you know that word Lord? It's a Greek word, kurios. You know what it means? It, it literally means master. And in order to be called a kurios, a master, the one thing necessary was you owned slaves. You owned people. You had authority over people. And whenever we say Jesus is Lord, you know what that confession is? That's not just saying He's the King or He rules. That's saying He is the master of my life and my destiny. He owns us, governs us. And if you claim to be a Christian, this is necessarily true for you. And so if you say, yes, I'm a Christian, Jesus is my Lord, but then you have no desire to obey His commands. And, and I don't mean in big things. Sometimes it's easier in big things. I mean in small things, heart things, private matters, which are always more significant than they appear. If, if you don't care about the commands of Christ and you have no desire to obey Him, can you really say that He's your Savior if He's not your Lord? Of course you can't. But you know, most people aren't claiming to be Christians and then rejecting everything that Jesus ever said. What happens instead is people will obey Him in measure. And people keep the commands, but only because they just so happen to overlap with their own personal values. Now, this happens, especially to conservative people. There is a lot of overlap. And the danger is that a man or a woman never really submits to the Lord. They just like the affirmation that He gives to some of their values. And they just keep on doing whatever they like. And occasionally, or even often, these desires just so happen to line up with what God commands. And so they do them. And they think that they're being Christian because the values are similar. And we call it obedience when it's convenient. And if that's you... When it serves you, you do the will of God, but when it rubs you the wrong way, you ignore it or excuse it. That's like a person who likes to drive 50 kilometers an hour. When they're driving around town, they're obeying the speed limit. Pat themselves on the back. I'm a good citizen. R.C. Sproul says this is civic virtue. But then they come to a school zone for the blind. 15 kilometers an hour. They blast through it, still going 50. They never don't even think about slowing down. Why don't they think about slowing down? Because the reality is they couldn't care less about the law. They only keep it when the law requires them to do what they want to do. But when the law rubs up against them, they refuse. I'll keep the law so long as I agree. I'll keep the law so long as it's convenient for me. I'll keep, I'll keep doing the Christian thing so long as it, uh, it lines up with all of my values and my desires. But who's the master? Me. Self. 
not the law, and for some Christians, not the Lord. Some people's Christianity is like this. They do what the Lord requires, not because of any love for Him. Maybe they like going to church, and so they go to church. Maybe they like knowing what the Bible has to say, so they read it. Maybe they like chastity, and so they practice it. Whatever it is. But when the Word commands something contrary to their desires, when the Bible says something, I don't really know if I like that, it's dismissed. Start to make excuses. Yeah, everybody else, they're, they're doing it. That's not Christianity. And that's not a Christian. That's not someone who belongs to Jesus Christ. A Christian is someone who's submitted to the Lord and yields to Him. So don't only look at the commands in Scripture that you find agreeable. Uh, you don't learn anything when, about, about who you serve when you both agree, right? You agree. Huh, we're on good terms. No push, no shove. Look at what happens when the commands of God conflict with maybe what you want to do, right? Look at the ones when they rub you the wrong way. Look at the ones that put, your, that, that put their finger, the commands of Scripture that puts their finger right on your heart and produces a conflict in you. How do you respond then? Do you justify your sin? Everyone else is doing it. I'm not that bad. I too enough already. If you can just simply dismiss the commands of the Lord offhand, do you really think that you belong to Him? You don't know where your loyalties lie until they're tested. And until the Word of God begins to challenge the fleshly desires in you, you really don't know where your allegiance lies. Do you belong to Him? Do you find your joy in honoring Him or only when He honors you? Do you love Him as your Father and fear to, to disappoint Him? When push comes to shove, which side do you take? Is it your own side against the Lord or do you side with the Lord against yourself? That's how you know who you really serve. When the Bible puts its finger, when the Lord puts His finger on that place and you say, I don't like this, are you going to trust Him or are you going to stick to your guns? When the Spirit comes into a person, it makes a difference. The hallmark of that difference is now that person wants to serve the Lord. They want to honor the Lord and they no longer are the lords of their own life. They give it over to Him. They control their bodies so that they can better love and honor and serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Is this the goal of your self-control? To glorify God with your body? If it is, you can be sure He will be with you and help you and all of those things that seem so impossible will be accomplished in the end. And if I could end this series on the fruit of the Spirit with one thing, it's this one thought that always encourages me. As we go through this, you know, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, uh, forgiveness, keeping anger in check. If you're anything like me, you're probably troubled by how short you fall on all of these things. They're not easy to preach because they open up a window into your own soul. They point out how much work is left for me to do. 
there's really only one spot you can turn to and take courage when that happens. Good night. If our salvation depended entirely on how far we advanced, we'd be done. I mean, the best Christian that you know has not advanced more than 1% towards the likeness of Christ. That we can take courage knowing that the Lord saves us because of the promises of Christ. And, listen, we can take courage knowing that God wants us to be fruitful. And not only does He want us to bear these fruits, He will help us to bear them. Come alongside us. You say, I can't do it. Yeah, that's right. But the Spirit of God at work in you makes your striving effective. God wants you to be the way you want to be. In every prayer you have ever prayed to be set free or to be sanctified, right? How many times have you prayed, Lord, I just want to be more like Christ and it just seems so slow in coming. You know, all of those prayers are stored up and one day they will be answered and the answer will be yes. That's something to look forward to. I don't know if you know this or not, but within 80 years, for most of us, some of us less, some of us maybe more, every prayer we have ever prayed for sin to be put away and holiness to be increased, every time you have ever prayed, Lord, make me like Christ, it will be answered perfectly and affirmatively when we go to be with Him. And so if I could take one verse and put it over this whole series on being like Jesus and living the Christian life, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be satisfied. And if this series has challenged you, take up the challenge, strive for godliness, and if it's given you a greater appetite for righteousness, you are blessed. Not cursed. Blessed. Because blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness because they will be satisfied. And if you're longing to be fruitful and longing to be like Christ and longing, hungering to put sin to death, be encouraged. You are blessed. God will satisfy those desires fully and forever all because of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, thank You that we have a beautiful inheritance. Thank You, Lord, that one day we will sin no more. We will be perfectly exercising self-control and love and forgiveness and joy and peace and faithfulness and gentleness. All of those things we long for, Lord, thank You that You have built a longing in us by Your Spirit to be more like Jesus. And I pray that Your people would when they see their own lack and they long for more, that, Lord, the Word in their mind would not be discouraged or failing, but, Lord, blessed. Because, Lord, only those who love You long and hunger and thirst to be like You. The world doesn't care to be like Jesus, but those who know You desire You. Lord, help those who hunger and thirst for righteousness to know they will be satisfied. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to be self-controlled, to batter our bodies and make them our slaves, 
that we would not be pulled to and fro by impulse and by whim, but that, Lord, we would serve you in everything that we do, knowing, Lord, that you own us, in fear of disappointing you because of your love for us, and realizing that in you we have the greatest joy. And so, Lord, let us discipline ourselves for joy's sake, that we might be more like you, knowing the joy of our salvation, knowing the joy of holiness. I pray, Lord, that you would give us self-control. And if there's anyone here who does not know you, they go their own way, they are their own master, even though they think they belong to you. I pray that you would show them this this morning. Show them where their loyalties really lie. And I pray, Lord, that they would know that you are willing to forgive them and to save them if they surrender their lives to you. It's in your name we pray, and in your name we hope. In your name we confess. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord. Amen.